I'm going to ask you to please stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's Word. Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. We pick up with the Lord speaking to Joshua just before they enter the promised land. This is the Lord says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this possession of the land which I swore to, to your fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all that the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Father, I pray in Jesus' name as we look... God, at this season, the life of your people, God, as they're entering into being your people in the promised land and then even beyond that, God, I believe that there's so many lessons, Lord, that you want to say to us today. I pray, God, would you help me? God, give me your words. Help me, God, to, uh, to cover what you would have me to say in a timely way. But God, most important, God, today, I pray, would you speak, Lord, for your name and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, we're going to continue in our series entitled The Story of God, where we've been looking at the overall history of God's working throughout the Bible from like a 30,000-foot view. And we've been doing this by looking at, at different eras uh, in the, the history of God's working. And so we're not able to dive into each individual story or moment or narrative in uh, this era, but we're kind of looking in an overall picture and what God has to say to us. Thus far, uh, we have looked at the era of creation and early humanity. We've looked at the era of the patriarchs. We talked about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then last week, we talked about the era of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And so today, we're going to look at the era of God's story in the conquest and the judges. So we pick up where we left off last week. So the people of God have just been delivered by the Lord through his servant Moses. They were 400 years being enslaved in Egypt. God brings them out in a miraculous way. They spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. God is teaching and refining his people and who they are in the wilderness. And then the next generation arises and they're about to enter into, cross the Jordan River, enter into the promised land, which was the land of Canaan, that God had promised the descendants of Abraham hundreds of years before this that he would give to his People And so Moses is about to die, and in that moment, he calls up, God calls up Joshua to lead his people into the promised land. So today, when we pick up in this series, we talk about the conquest. This is when God's people are to go into the land of Canaan and basically conquer the land from the Canaanites, the people that are living in the land, to set up God's nation on this holy land that he had Given them, so that's a little bit of backstory of where we are. So, question number one: We've been asking four questions during this series to kind of help us guide us in this overview time. But question number one is: What are the major happenings that we need to see during this season of God's story? Now, the era of the conquest and the judges spans roughly three hundred to three hundred fifty to four hundred years. Joshua led the people of God into Canaan in roughly 1400 B.C. 
And then the era of the judges begins right after Joshua's death, which is roughly 1350 B.C., and it ran all the way up to Samuel, who was the last judge who ultimately anointed the first king of his people. So you understand this for a moment. Joshua brings them into the land. They conquer the land. Once Joshua dies, then God raises up different eras of judges. And that timeline is about 350 years where judges are ruling the people of God. All the way up to Samuel, who is the last judge, who then appoints the first king of his people. So, let me give you a few of the major happenings during the conquest era, which roughly covers the book of Judges, a book of uh, Joshua. So the first major happening in the conquest era is God calling Joshua to be the one to succeed Moses in the leadership of his people and him to be the one to lead them across the Jordan River to con- conquer uh, the land, the promised land, the land of the Canaanites. The Bible says, and we just read it there in Joshua chapter 1, that God was calling Joshua to this task. What's important to know is that in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses' last book, is that we see that God had already called Joshua at one point to lead his people. In Joshua chapter 31, just before Moses dies, the Bible says that God calls Moses to bring Joshua into the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, and there he was going to call Joshua. We see Deuteronomy 31 verse 23 That the Lord tells Joshua, hey, Moses is about to die and you are going to lead my people. He says in Deuteronomy 31, 23, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. And so this is the first call of God calling Joshua. Then Moses dies. After Moses dies, the people of God mourn for 30 days. They mourn for a month. At the end of that month, it is now time for them to go into the promised land, to cross the Jordan River, to begin this work. And it's at this moment that God calls Joshua again. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says this, Now it came about, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving you, to the sons of Israel. Now, obviously, this would have been an incredibly intimidating moment. I've heard people who have been called to move into leadership after those who have led incredibly well is that nobody wants to follow that person. Can we imagine one day uh, when Nick Saban retires at the University of Alabama, who wants to follow Nick Saban? Uh, You wouldn't want to be that guy. You want to be the guy who follows the guy who follows Nick Saban. That would be what you would want to do. And this is kind of that same atmosphere here, is that Joshua is being called upon to follow Moses. Now, he's already heard it in Deuteronomy 31, but now 30 days later, God speaks to him again. But he speaks to him because he's afraid. Listen to verse 5. This is what God reaffirms to Joshua. He says, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. Isn't that encouraging to see is that God sees right where Joshua is. It's one thing to be told that you're going to be the leader while Moses is still in the room, but now in the room, but now Moses is gone and it's your opportunity to to take over the reins and God in his mercy and his grace sees Joshua and tells him again, I am with you. Church family, sometimes 
following the Lord can be easy. Sometimes it's great to know that you are a child of God. But then there's sometimes when it gets hard. Sometimes when it gets difficult, sometimes we're in the middle, we're facing a mountain or a stand that we're going to have to take for the kingdom of God. And I am so thankful that God doesn't just call us once and leave us alone, but that God is with us. And he reaffirms to us often through the Holy Spirit what we need to hear when we need to hear it. So this is the first major moment is God calling Joshua. The second major moment in the conquest is when the people of God, when they cross the Jordan River. In Joshua chapter 3, uh, verse, through, through chapter 5, we see this moment. And again, this is another moment where God reiterates to Joshua and the people of God that he is with Joshua like he is with Moses. The instructions that Joshua gave the people of God was for the priests to go down first to the Jordan River. They had to consecrate themselves first and foremost. They had to purify themselves to make sure that they were ready to go be the people of God. Church family, it still matters If you want to be used of the Lord to regularly consecrate yourself to God. Say, God, wash me and cleanse me. Let me be wholly committed to you. So then the priests go down into the Jordan River and they are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which was a picture of the presence of God among his people. And The Bible says, as soon as the priests' toes entered the water, that the Jordan River stopped flowing is that everything that was flowing down is it began to wall up in the same way that the Red Sea did. And everything below that began to dry up. And the people of God, this millions of people we said last week, crossed over the Jordan River on dry land and the water did not continue to flow until the priests came up out of the Jordan River. This was an incredible moment because it did two things. First, it let the people of God know That God was with Joshua just like he was with Moses. Moses led the people through on dry land. Now Joshua can too. But secondly, the Bible makes it clear in Joshua 5 that God was sending a message to the people in the land that the same God who had brought them through the Red Sea is the same God who has now just stepped in to town. The Bible says that Joshua 5, that the people and the Canaanites, that their, their hearts melted within them. In a lot of ways... God was go ahead, he was getting in the heads of their enemies. He was doing psychological warfare here before the people of God ever had to fight the first battle. The third moment of the conquest then goes to the defeat of Jericho. Now this was an important battle. It was likely the greatest city that they would face in the entire conquest. Most historians say that the walls around Jericho were roughly ten stories tall. And it was known to be a city full of valiant warriors. But God would not have Joshua and his army defeat the battle of Jericho in a traditional way. But God was yet teaching them again at the very beginning of their conquest militarily is that they would first and foremost have to trust on the Lord. So it didn't matter how many bows they had, they didn't build any siege ramps. But rather, God had them do something unusual. Don't ever be afraid, by the way, to step out and do some things that are unusual if God is leading you to do it, unless it's not backed up uh, by Scripture. Now, you know, if, if, if God tells you, you know, to strip down naked and run around the parking lot, God may not be telling you to do that. That would be outside of Scripture. But pay attention to those moments when God is speaking to you. But the Bible says that they are to walk around the walls of Jericho once a day for six days. But on the seventh day, they are to walk around seven times. 
And as they walk around seventh times, on the seventh time, the priests were to blow trumpets. And when they blow trumpets, the people of God were to shout a great shout. And the Bible says when this happened, these ten-story tall walls, that they come falling down. Do you remember the children's song? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Down. This was an incredibly important moment in the lives of God's people. God was letting his people know that he was with them. And then the fourth major moment in the conquest was when sin was discovered in the camp. After the battle of Jericho was fought in Joshua chapter 6, in Joshua chapter 7, the Bible shows us a moment where he had to discipline his people. See, God had put a ban on all of the spoils of Jericho. Now later on, the people of God were able to enjoy the spoils of the lands that they conquered. But this first battle, this first victory, all the gold, all the silver, all the precious fabrics and things were to be dedicated to the Lord. It's actually an early picture again of first fruits giving. This is why we as God's people, God tells us to, to tithe, to bring the first fruits. When well, The first thing that comes into my house financially, I give it back unto the Lord. And that's kind of a picture going on here. But the Bible says that after they conquer Jericho, the next battle they're going to face is a smaller people called Ai. If you're a football coach, this is kind of a supposed to win. It's a battle that you're supposed to win. But rather they go up and they're defeated. Joshua tears his clothes before the Lord and says, God, thought you said that you were going to be with us. And the Lord reveals to Joshua that there is sin in the camp. Joshua chapter 7, verse 13. The Lord says to Joshua to tell the people, Rise up, consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. So God essentially tells the people, hey, until you get this sin out from among you, I will not be with you. And so God supernaturally begins to reveal who took the things under the ban. It was a man named Achan of the tribe of Judah. They start casting lots and it goes down to which tribe and then clans, which clan and then which family. And eventually it goes to Achan. And Achan goes and reveals that he has hidden these things in the ground under his tent. Even though he had an opportunity to confess it when they had this opportunity to consecrate themselves, he kept it hidden. And because of that, God severely disciplines Achan. He is stoned. He with his entire family. And this may seem harsh at first glance, but it reveals to us that God is holy. And when His commands are not obeyed, He is just and rightly executes judgment. It also shows us something that we also know is true, is that often hidden sin does not just affect the sinner, but it affects everyone around them. The fifth moment in the conquest era was the land being divided among the people of Israel. In Joshua's chapter 8 through 12, you see there's several battles that are recorded where God mightily goes before them. In fact, in Joshua 10, at one point, the people of God are winning such a great battle that, uh, that Joshua prays, Oh Lord, would you make the sun stand still that we could continue fighting? The Bible says the sun stood still for an entire day so the battle could continue on, the people of God could continue to win. But then after this moment, Joshua's about 90 years old. And he recognizes that the, the land is broad and vast and he can't lead every battle. And so he allots the remaining, he allots to each tribe 
what parts of the land that they are to have and that they would possess and settle in. And he commissions them to go out and conquer those lands themselves. And so then they, they split up, they get their lands, and they go out to begin to conquer their lands. The Bible says, that again, that they win a lot of victories, but it also shows us that the people of God started to, to let up. They started to uh, not completely follow the word of the Lord, and they didn't completely run out the people in the land, and this would end up costing them later on in God's story. But then at the end of the book of Joshua, this basically this allotment of the lands takes the remainder of the book of Joshua, and just before Joshua dies, the Bible says that he gives one last challenge to the people of God. He says in Joshua 24, verse 14, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in, and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. These last words of Joshua are a great lesson to all of us here today who have been given spiritual leadership and responsibility over our families. Whether it be single moms here this morning, single dads, whether it be husbands and wives, whether it be grandparents, if God has given you charge, spiritual influence over the lives of those around us, then the spiritual success of the next generation will absolutely be dictated by you. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Church family, if we, if, if we are halfway committed to our relationship with God, if we compromise in our relationship with God, then for the next generation it will be inconvenient. And it will be ultimately invisible. So this is the overall happenings during the conquest. Secondly, let me give you the major happenings in the judges' era. So Joshua dies. After Joshua's death, we then enter into the season of the judges. So the people of God, they're settling in the lands that have been allotted to them. And this season runs roughly 350 years. And it's a season that is marked by a lot of struggle in the lives of God's people. They are struggling with security. They're consistently battling these peoples in the lands. And the reason why is because they never fully completed what God told them to do in the beginning. But their security problems are tied to their spiritual problems. Let me give you a few things you need to know about this season in the lives of God's people. First, you need to know that the people of God in the era of the judges were unfaithful to God. In Judges chapter 10, verse 13, we see that quickly after the death of Joshua, that the next generation of Israelites turned away from God. It says, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers... And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, yet the work which he had done for them. The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. These are foreign gods. And they, listen to this, forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. They bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. Another statement 
that is seen in the book of Judges that kind of gives us a snapshot of the spiritual condition of the people of God in the, in the days of the Judges is in Judges 17 verse 6 that says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. They were not following the Lord. They were following their own will. Which, by the way, we need to take a kind of a time out here for a moment and again call us back to, As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. The Bible says here that the generation who knew Joshua is that they died. And the next generation who came up is that did not know the Lord nor the things of the Lord. Why did they not know the Lord nor the things of the Lord? It's because the generation before them failed in discipleship. They didn't call their children to serve the Lord. They didn't call their children and tell of the stories of God's working. They did not disciple their children. And so because of that, the next generation was lost. We're not talking hundreds of years here. We're talking one generation dies. And the next generation, entire generation, does not know the Lord. You're going to hear me as your pastor here at Enon talk a lot about reaching the next generation. And that is not to overemphasize previous generations. Man, I'm so excited about our 150-year anniversary. To get to, to, you're going to get to hear some stories of some of those faithful servants of God who have gone before us here at Enon to, to shine that gospel witness, to help us be the church that we are here today. To hear stories of Mr. Jenkins who would drive up here early in the morning and, and light the fires in the heaters so Sunday school classes would have heat in their rooms when they came to church. Praise God for those people. But that being said... The next generation is always the forefront of every generation. Because if one generation stops reaching the next generation, then a movement of God ceases in that moment. My prayer would be as the Lord lets me continue to pastor and preach till I'm 60, 70, 80 years old, that even then my hope would be as I'm still preaching, oh God, may we reach the next generation. Secondly, We need to know that the people of God in the era of the judges were disciplined by God when they turned away from God. In Judges chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, we see that as God had promised that when his people forsook him, that he disciplined them. It says, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them. Wow! Think about that for a moment. Everywhere they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, is what the Bible says. As the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so they were severely distressed. God had told them through Moses, choose life or death, blessings or cursings. They had chosen to forsake the Lord. They had chosen the discipline of God. And God was faithful to do that. Church family, this should speak to us here today that God will discipline and correct His people in order to turn them back to Him. It is possible for us to be the people of God and the hand of the Lord be against us. That should cause us to be sobered this morning. Thirdly, we need to know that the people of God in the era of the judges, that God gave them grace and sent them judges to rescue his people when they repented. In Judges 2.18, we see that God, though that God is disciplining his people when they repented, is that God would then raise up a judge. That he would fight for them militarily, but then he would also lead them spiritually and lead them back to God. The Bible says there in verse 18, When the Lord raised up judges for them, 
The Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. And basically, the remainder of the book of Judges tells the stories of these men and women that God used to do this. And it also shows us that sin cycle. The people of God would be at peace. They would forsake the Lord. They would sin. God would discipline them. When God would discipline them for a season, the Bible says several years here in some moments, they would repent. When they would repent, God would give them grace, raise up a judge who God would use that judge to deliver them. Then they would have a season where they're following the Lord. And then that season of peace would then lead them to forsake the Lord. And it would start again and again and again. Now, I'm not going to go into the lives. And I'm going to say, these judges that God used is some of the most encouraging reading in the Old Testament. Go and read about these great men and women of God. In Judges 3, we see that God used Othniel as the first judge to lead God's people. In Judges 3, also, we see God raising up Judges Ehud and Shamgar. In Judges 4 through 5, we see God raising up Deborah, the prophetess, as a judge. And she appointed Barak as her military commander, and God used her. In Judges 6 through 8, we see God raising up Gideon. Boy, you want to read an encouraging reading. Read about God using Gideon. In Judges 8 through 10, we see God raising up Tola and Yair to judge and deliver them. In Judges 10 through 12, we see God using Jephthah, Isben, Elon, and Abdon to judge and deliver his people. And finally, in Judges 13 through 16, we see God raises up Samson as a judge over his people. But again, ultimately, these are the major happenings of the people of God in the season of Joshua and the season of the judges. So question number two. What is the key scripture or theme we need to know from this era in God's story? Now, it's hard to pick one verse or one theme in this era because they're so starkly different. You know, in one season, God's people are following him. They're winning great victories. God is using them. And in another season, man, it's over 300 years of them messing up and repenting, God giving grace. Them messing up and repenting, God giving grace. And in fact, Henrietta Mears In her book, What the Bible is All About, which, by the way, that's a great book. It's a great reference if you're reading through the Bible. It's basically a a few short pages on each book of the Bible to help you understand what's going on. If you're reading through a one-year Bible, get uh, What the Bible is All About by Henrietta Mears. It's a great tool. But she compares the differences between Joshua and Judges. She says, Joshua is filled with joy while Judges is filled with sobs. Joshua is filled with victory, while Judges is filled with many defeats. Joshua is filled with progress for God's people, while Judges is filled with decline. Joshua is filled with faith, while the Judges is filled with unbelief. Joshua is filled with freedom, while the Judges is filled with servitude. And again, they're so different, but as I prayed this week, I was saying, God, what is the theme, the one true theme that came out that is true in both of these moments in this era is that God is faithful to His Word. Both seasons shows God's faithfulness. Remember I mentioned earlier in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 19, is that Moses basically reaffirms God's covenant with his people as they enter the land. The first part of the covenant is is that if you are faithful to serve me, to honor me, then I will bless you in the land. But the second part of of the covenant was, but if you turn from me, and if you worship other gods, 
then I will discipline you severely and I will curse you. And at the end of that covenant, Moses says in verse 19, I call heaven and earth as witness against you today that I set before you life and death, blessings and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Again, the the terms of the covenant were clear. If you follow me, I'm going to bless you. If you don't, I will discipline you. In the season of Joshua, by and large, God's people honored and followed him. And what, what did he do? He was faithful and he blessed them. In the seasons of the judges, God's people dishonored him. They didn't follow him. And what, would, what did God do? He was faithful to his word. He disciplined and corrected him. Church, this should remind us that God is faithful and he always keeps his word. It doesn't mean that we, we will always like it when God is faithful, but it does mean that we can always count on it. I remember when I was a little boy, uh, my dad, for the most part, was a guy, when it came to us as kids, man, he, he kept his word. Uh, I remember when we were little boys and uh, we were going to go to work with him. Uh, he worked for the bakery. Is that if we, would, if we were good, if we, if we were good, we had to leave early in the morning. It was about 4 o'clock in the morning. He would wrap up around lunch and he would say, boys, if y'all are good, then at the end of the day, I will take you guys and we'll go get lunch somewhere. And usually we would beg for Pasquale's. Because if you remember Pasquale's in Gardendale, it's when they still had the lunch buffet. And I just knew that that garlic bread was calling my name, man. It was, I've always had a problem with carbs, y'all. You can pray for me on that. Anyway, that was, that's probably where it started. But if, but, if I, but if I was good, if I was faithful, then he would do that. He'd take us to Pasquale's. But also in the summertime, when he would leave, and he would give us a list of chores to do. And he would say, hey, listen, when I get back today, you've got to have these chores finished and he, if, it were, if, if I had done my chores, all would be well. But he promised discipline if I did not. In both cases, my father was keeping his word. In both cases, he still loved me no matter what I did. If I did not do my chores and he disciplined me, he was being faithful to his word. If he blessed us and took us to Pasquale's because we were good, he was being faithful to his word. In both situations, it was right and good. However, in one situation, I looked forward to my father keeping in his word. And in another situation, I didn't look forward to my father keeping his word. But church, what we've got to remember today is that God is a God who always keeps his word. Sometimes when we're being faithful to honor him, man, he's going to open the windows of heaven and he'll bless us and he'll be near to us in his presence. But then when we run away from him and God begins to discipline and work in our hearts and lives to draw us back, we may not like it, but in both situations, he is good and he loves us. Man, if this season should say anything to us today, it should say that God is faithful. And very quickly today, question number three. Is what are the lessons that God wants us to learn today from this era? I really struggled this week. I struggled with this week because there's so much good stuff to see here. We, we could look at the lesson that we see in God calling Joshua twice because Joshua was afraid and God meeting his people who are willing to do what he wants them to do is that God meets them when we need it. I, I want you to hear this morning that if you're willing to step out there and say, God, I'm going to honor you, is that God is going to be faithful to meet with you in those moments. We could talk all over this era about that. We could talk about Gideon. 
How Gideon, the Bible says, is that he was threshing out wheat in a wine press because he was afraid of the attacking armies. But God gave him just what he needed. And he spoke to him, oh, man of valor, when he called him. God saw in in Gideon what he didn't see in himself. We could talk about that this morning, but that's not what the Lord wanted me to talk about today. We, We could talk about how hidden sin can lead to great consequences. We, we see that in the life of Achan as he hid this sin in his tent. Even though he had an opportunity to repent, he did not. And how his sin brought only, not only death to him and to his family and those around them. Church family, I want you to hear this this morning. That if you're walking in hidden sin, if you're walking in hidden disobedience to God, it will not just hinder you, but it will hinder everybody around you. Teenagers, if you're struggling here today with some sort of hidden sin, it's not just going to hurt you. It'll hurt your mom and dad, husbands, wives, if you're struggling with hidden sin. God God doesn't just deal with you in that. Is that often the consequences of your sin go all around you, and that's at your feet. I also consider talking about how God is always looking for people He can use in the middle of evil days. It seemed like God was always had a few. God always had those men and women. God always had people like Deborah who he was willing to use. And, and, and part of me wanted to take a TV time out here this Sunday and just, just remind us in this moment, if, if God using Deborah says anything to us here today, is that God's got a great plan for our sisters in Jesus this morning. Is that if you're, we should pray for our children and little girls who are in us in service this morning to believe that God can use you in great ways. In fact, in the New Testament, is concerned the only role that a woman cannot hold is the role of pastor or elder. And if you ever see a woman carrying that title as pastor or elder, you need to be wary of that because that's against Scripture. But outside of that, man, we need to believe that God can use our little girls in great and mighty ways. Pray for that. But the two lessons I felt like that God wanted me to bring to you this morning was if we see anything in this era, we see that God never gives up on His people. Man, this is a, this is a story, an era of grace. Almost a dozen times there in Judges, God's people completely abandon Him. But God disciplines them. But he's disciplining them to draw them back so that they can be his people over and over and over again. He gives his people grace. In fact, if you read through the book of Judges, sometimes you just want to say, God, if it was me, I would have washed my hands. But how often are we in that same situation? That we fail and we fail and we don't deserve God's grace, but God is faithful. The Bible over and over again talks about God's undeserved grace and mercy towards us. In James chapter 4, it says that God gives a greater grace. In Psalms 86, 5, it says the Lord is good, ready to forgive. In Lamentations chapter 3, His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And the promise from Jesus in John 10 is that, that all that the Father has given me, no one will snatch them out of my hand. If this passage in this era reminds us of anything is that God doesn't give up on his people even when we would give up on ourselves. Now over years of doing ministry now I have found there's always two different types of people when you talk about the grace of God. There are those who abuse God's grace 
who say, well, Jesus has forgiven me of all my sins so I can do whatever I want to. Let me say something to you here today. If you can live that way without the conviction of God in your life, then you've never really experienced the grace of God to begin with. But more commonly than not, I find people who are God's people, who are doing the best they can. They're trying to honor the Lord, trying to live holy before the Lord. They're not perfect, but they're striving after Him. But these people refuse God's grace. They always feel like, God, I'm never enough. I can never measure up. And the truth is, is that no, you can't ever measure up. And that's why we needed Jesus. But if you have Jesus, you have Him, and that's all you need. That you don't wake up every day with the confidence that you're a child of God. Because you refuse the grace of God. Several years ago, uh, it was our first Mother's Day was coming up in our family. And I wanted to do something special for Kimberly. And so I decided that I was going to build her a farmhouse table. But I was not a woodworker. <laughs> so, so I did the best I could. I went to Lowe's and I bought a truckload of lumber. I went to a friend of mine's house who had a woodworking shop. And we did the best we could. But he, he told me very early on, he explained to me the difference between number one lumber and number two lumber. Number one lumber is straight. It doesn't have any knots. It's not what you make furniture out of. Number two lumber is what you, you use for structure, but you're going to put sheetrock over it. Nobody's ever going to see it because it's crooked. It's got knot holes in it. And Well, I had bought a bunch of number two lumber, and that was all I could afford. So after a lot of glue and a lot of clamps and a lot of saw work, we finally built this table. Man, I was so excited about it. And I was getting ready to, to sand it and stain it. And I noticed right in the middle of the table, I didn't realize that they stamp wood. They stamp it with like number two or number one. And right in the middle of the table was this giant stamp that said number two. <laughs> I could just see myself giving her that table on Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Here's your subpar table. <laughs> so I was thinking, all right, I'll sand it out. I started sanding it, working on it. Man, the light grit sand didn't work. And I was like, oh, this is not good. And Got a little bit heavier sander. It's not there. Finally break out a belt sander if you don't know anything about that. And I'm sanding. And apparently this stain went deep down into this. And, and I, if I don't stop, I'm going to give her a set of legs with a piece of paper on top. You know. <laughs> and my only hope is I finally looked at my buddy and I said, maybe the stain will cover it. And my first bit of stain, I went down with that rag right over the top of it. And it covered it and you could never see it was there. And I was like, man, praise the Lord. You know, so... Several weeks later, I, I give her the table. Weeks go by. I haven't thought about that story at all. And then I got up one Monday morning, which is which a hard day for a lot of pastors. I got up one Monday morning. I was feeling pretty low. Lord, who am I? Who am I that you could use me? Who am I that I could even call on your name? And I started having one of those spiritual pity parties. And I got before the Lord. And I said, God, I don't even know why you even love me or care about me. And in that moment... The Holy Spirit reminded me of that table. He said, Zach, that's what you see yourself as sometimes. You see a big number two stamped on you, defective, crooked, and broken. But Zach, what you don't remember is that when my blood covered you, is I took that away. And you are mine. Some of you this morning, you feel that way. You feel far from God. And you feel like that... You can't follow the Lord fully because you're too messed up. And I want to hear you today. It's because you're so messed up that Jesus gave you his blood. And you've got to know how much he loves you to be able to walk in greater victory over sin and brokenness. And that's the first lesson. And I felt like God wanted to tell us from this era. And the second lesson from this era is it shows us that God promises grace. 
but it doesn't mean that he promises protection. We need to celebrate God's grace, but if this era says anything to us today, it should show us that God really hates sin. and He's going to deal with it. And the Bible makes that really clear that that's true in the New Testament as well. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son he receives. Church, we see in God being faithful to discipline his people over and over and over again during this season should show us that God is not going to give up on turning our wayward hearts back to him. If you're running from God today and you're miserable, God's not going to let you get comfortable in your misery. And in fact, the Bible says he's just going to keep making you more miserable to turn you back to him. Like the scripture says there in Judges that he has his hand against you. And sometimes this can be severe. Psalms chapter 51 verse 8, David is in the middle of God disciplining him. And listen to what he says. Oh God, make me to hear joy and gladness and let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Sometimes God has to break our bones. And what I have found out in the discipline of the Lord is that if I confess it quickly, my discipline is usually a lot less severe. It's just like I am with my kids. When my kids mess up and make a mistake, and when they come to me first, Dad, I'm sorry, this is what I did, then I'm, I'm always much more, it's always much easier to be graceful to them than the moments when they have done something wrong and they're lying about it, they're hiding it from me, because then the discipline just gets even more severe. Church, this morning, if you're running from God, for the sake of of the glory of the Lord, and even for your own sake and discipline. Do not live in hidden sin any longer. Give that to the Lord Jesus and let God revive you. If you're running from God today, run back to Him this morning. He'll meet you there where you are. And our last truth this morning is our fourth and final question we must answer today is, where are the redemptive threads in this era? I'm going to ask Brother Ron to make his way back up. You know, each era, we've been looking, where are the pictures that point us to Jesus? And the greatest picture of redemption in this era that I believe is the story of Rahab. You know, the Bible says that as the people of God are coming to Jericho, this first battle, that they send spies into the city. And the spies are about to get caught. But a prostitute named Rahab hides them. And when they, she brings them out at night, when they're going to escape, she says, when the Lord your God gives you victory... Will you remember me? And they promise her, surely you and all your household will be saved. They tell her to let a scarlet thread down out of her window to show which house is hers. Ultimately, the people of God, they win the battle of Jericho. And her and her whole family are adopted into the family of Israel. And what's so beautiful there too is that not only do they come into the family, they are integrated into the people of God. In fact, this prostitute, marries in this season. She marries a man named Salmon. And then Salmon and Rahab had a son named Boaz who would end up being the great-grandfather to King David from whom God would bring about Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. In fact, if you go to Matthew chapter 1 and you start reading through the genealogy, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, our Savior, you find Rahab's name, the prostitute mentioned. What should that say to us here this morning is that it, first and foremost it lets us know that God adopts people into his family that are not his own. 
If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you don't know the Lord or you're far from God or your lifestyle says you're everything but somebody who is following Jesus, the promise of the gospel, God's been doing it from Rahab and he's still doing it today, is that he brings people into his family. In the Old Testament, the promise, the picture was a scarlet ribbon coming out of a window. In the New Testament, it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that covers our sin and invites us into his kingdom. And the promise of those who come into their kingdom is that God gives them a new beginning. Man, think about this. This prostitute goes from being a, a prostitute to a wife. A wife of God's people, a prostitute, becomes a mama. Isn't that beautiful? Rahab is the Old Testament picture. Of a New Testament principle in 2 Corinthians 5 17 that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things pass away. Behold, all things become new. This morning, that may be some of you today. You need to become new. You need to come into the family of God. You need to give your life to Jesus. The door is open. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right there where you are, you can call out to Jesus, say, Jesus, save me. He will cover you with his blood and forgive you of all your sin and bring you into the family of God. He can do that this morning. Or maybe this morning, God's calling you to recommit, man, to following him afresh and anew. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We do this every Sunday. We do a moment where we sing in a time of invitation. Our pastors will be up front. And this is a time for you to go and do business with God. So I encourage you in these next few moments, if you need to join this church, feel free to come forward. If you want to come kneel at this altar, if you need somebody to pray for you, you feel free to come. If you need to be saved, you need to give your life to Jesus, man, come forward let one of us pray with you. You can call it Jesus right there where you are. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray. Lord, I thank you, God, for the pictures of redemption that we see. God, in your word, that you're always working to draw people to you. Praise you, O Lord Jesus. God, I pray that right now, that those, God, that you're calling would heed your voice to come. God, those who are hidden sin or running from you, God, would come, Lord Jesus. Those who need to come to know you would come, Father. Lord, that they would come to you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need to come, you come now as we sing.